there are two types of people in this world. There are math type people and there are artsy type people. Math people are those who grasp all things logical but fail when it comes to the aesthetic. And the artsy people are those who overflow with creativity but struggle when it comes to numbers. Now, sometimes it's called left-brained, right-brained um, types of people. Those are left-brained are the math types. They like things organized. They like things on a schedule. They focus on one task at a time. They, they think in words. They prefer to be alone with a book. They like nonfiction. The right-brained, on the other hand, are the artsy type. Their desk is a mess. They daydream often. They like to think in pictures. They like music. They follow intuition and, and they... Uh, like people in social settings is what they prefer. Now, these, of course, are, are generalities. All right? I mean, it's, it's very difficult to divide everybody into two categories. Right brain, left brain is simplistic at best. And very few are, are really just all one or the other. I, oftentimes, there's a big, a big spectrum that, that some, well, they, they're, they're like this, they're more math, and yet they still have some artsy tend- tendencies, but they tend to be more here. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, and so all of you can probably identify what you are, so you think about it. Now, in our home, I'm like Mr. Math, right? Mr. Left Brain, um, though I do, I do have some other right brain tendencies, as my desk isn't always so neat and I'm more spontaneous, but predominantly, I'm the math kind of person. And in our home, SR, on the other hand, is the artsy kind of person. He lets all things just kind of flow. Math is painful for him. He prefers the artistic, as most all of you know. And then I got Carissa and Avon, and they are like in the middle. And they, they are like good at both. And so um, they excel both ways. But it's led to some interesting dynamics when it comes in our house to teaching SR math. Um, and I know that some of you can relate to this. Uh, I know... Um, uh, Gracie Dean can relate to this, and at least you probably can, and I know Amanda can probably relate to this, of so just the, the struggles with math. And that's not a bad thing, it's just that they, um, just how God has, has made these people. Um, but often we go over a math lesson, which I seek to explain, and in my mind it's as clear as day, and in his mind it's as clear as mud. And, and he can't quite get it, and I go over it, and over it, and over it, and eventually... After lots of examples and much repetition and a few tears and many years, it begins to come slowly. And you know, I, I, I remember having a taste of this. SR, I can relate to you. I, I remember, I mean, all of us at some point, math gets very difficult and it, it is in the abstract. I remember I was taking a class in quantum physics and... Um, and it was just, it was hard. I, I, I still like never grasp it really. And um, I remember one time going into the professor's office and just saying, I'm confused. He explained it to me. And in his mind, it was clear as day. In my mind, it was clear as mud. And it, it just didn't work. And I said, no, I don't, didn't get it. And he explained it again. It still didn't work. He explained it again. It didn't work. And, and he's getting angry with me. And I'm like, I'm trying my best to understand it. It's just uh, my synapses in my brain just didn't quite work to try to understand the, the logic of, of how that was, was going. I didn't understand. And oftentimes with SR, when I teach him math, I say, SR, do you understand? Do you understand? Because understanding comes slowly. And you know what? I'm the same way when it comes to visual things. Right? I'm, I'm very slow when it comes to aesthetics. So don't be talking to me. I rely upon others for that for sure. But there is a parallel in the spiritual realm. There are two types of people in the world. There are those who grasp the gospel and there are those who don't grasp the gospel. You might call them natural men and spiritual men. And I don't think it's unbiblical to it all. Put two people in, the, people in those categories. You're either spiritual or you're a natural person. 1 Corinthians 2 that Darren read for us. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's how Paul put it. He says, the natural man is earthly, and when it comes to spiritual things, just cannot understand it. It's not that he won't understand it. Paul says he cannot understand it because they're, they're spiritually discerned. It's like the spiritual realities of the natural man just doesn't compute. In the next verse, Paul says, 
But he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. And I think that speaks about how the spiritual one can discern the heavenly realities. And we can argue that the Bible speaks to this complete dichotomy between spiritual men and natural men. But we can also argue, um, like 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel is veiled, if there is a natural man, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of glory of Christ. So you have natural man and their problem is they cannot understand because Satan has blinded them. We need God to remove the veil in order for them to see, but they are blinded and they can't see those realities. You have two types of people, those who see the gospel and those who are blind to the gospel. And yet, in the Scripture, you can also argue that there is some sort of continuum as well. Think... Think um, the parable of the soils. The seed, the sower goes out to sow and he sows along the soil, the soils. And there's the hard soil and there's the rocky soil and there's the thorny soil and there's the good soil. Now, of course, the good soil and the, the hard soil are dichotomies, right? They're, they're far to one end. The hard soil doesn't understand the things the Spirit of God at all. Here's the Word, just deflects off of Him. Birds come and take it away. The spiritual man, though, is the one who receives the Word and takes it and grows. But they've got these other two in the middle. The, the rocky and the thorny who, who receive the Word and it like starts to grow up in them and they start to progress, but then through various means they fall away and they don't believe. And so they, they revert to the natural man of what they, what they were before. But you can also see, even in our text this morning, that you have people who don't understand and then you have people who are slow to understand as they work their way to maturity. That is the dynamics of the church. Paul said that, pastors, we proclaim Christ, longing to complete every man complete in Christ. It means that not all of us are spiritual and understand everything. We are are spiritual, but they are walking towards more of a spiritual understanding and there is this continuum. And the fact is this, that understanding and grasping spiritual reality comes slow to us. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We come this morning in our exposition of Mark to Mark chapter 8, the first 21 verses. And in these verses, we're going to see how slowly spiritual understanding can come. The climax of these verses come in the very last verse. Verse 21, He was saying to them, just constantly, do you not yet understand? That, by the way, is going to be a predominant theme in the Gospel of Mark that we will see in uh, the next several weeks and months to come. Because we're going to see the disciples just don't get it. Over and over again. Now, now they're believing in Jesus. They're they're trusting in Him, but they're they're not fully grasping it. They're just... They're just not there. And even though they saw Jesus feed thousands of people, they're worried because they don't have bread on the trip. And Jesus tells them that He's headed to Jerusalem to be killed. And the disciples are talking about who's the greatest. They see Jesus heal the leper and raise the paralytic, calm the storm, walk on water, grant sight to the blind. And yet they all scatter at the hour of Jesus' greatest need. And verse 21 can really be asked again and again and again throughout the Gospel of Mark. Do you understand do you understand? Do you, do you understand? And, and that's really my heart here to you this morning is to say, do you understand? Maybe your case here this morning is you have no understanding. Like the Pharisees. They have no understanding. Or maybe your, your case is like the, the disciples. They're slow understanding. And in this way, this text can greatly comfort us this morning because we just say, I'm just like them. I'm just like a disciple and we can have hopes that we'll mature as they matured. Well, here we go. First 11 verses of Mark 8. I want to read them for you. In those days, when they, there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with Me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will we be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. 
And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And and they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. We can just even stop there. We have here the, the feeding of the 4,000. Now, if these words sound familiar, it's because they are familiar. We have already heard about Jesus in chapter 6 feeding the 5,000. In many ways, the circumstances were the same. Jesus was teaching thousands of people. They were, he was teaching them for a long time. They were listening and becoming hungry. Jesus felt compassion upon them, and so He took some fish and some loaves, fed them all. They all were satisfied, and lots of scraps were picked up at the end. But these are different. They're not the same. Like In one, the number was 5,000 people, and the others, 4,000 were numbered. In the ones, the crowds were there for all the day. And in the other, there for three days. It's a longer period of time. In the one, Jesus had five loaves and two fish. In the other, Jesus had seven loaves and a few fish. In the one, they sat down on the grass. and the other, they sat down on the ground. That is significant because it just tells you probably the season. Uh, the climate of uh, Jerusalem, Israel, uh, Galilee at that time, still is, is like uh, the Bay Area. right? We went out there recently on our trip to Nepal. I was astonished at how green everything is because we normally go out there in the summertime when everything's brown. But in the springtime, you can sit on the grass in California. But not in the summertime. In the summertime, it looks like Chihuahua does. Just dry and desolate. So a different time of the year. In the one, the disciples picked up 12 small baskets. And in this one, they picked up seven large baskets. In the one, it was probably Jewish territory. In this one, from the best we can tell, as it says in verse 1, in those days, he's still over in the Gentile region. It was probably to the Gentiles. These are two miracles that occurred on two different occasions. Now, I just tell you that because there are some liberal scholars who try to put these as one miracle. But they're recorded twice. There's enough discrepancy in the two accounts that there are two miracles. So let's just walk through this miracle. It was in the land of the Gentiles. What I said, the feeding takes place in the um, first three verses. In those days... When there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus said to His disciples, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with Me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come a great distance. Well, Jesus here had been teaching the crowd. They're called large crowds here in verse 1. In verse 9, we see that it was 4,000 people. Now, it could be more than 4,000 people. It it says in uh, chapter 6, verse 44, it identifies here that there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. It doesn't identify men here in verse 9, but it says 4,000, but that's just a, a generic masculine plural that may be just referring to men. So there may be more. We'll just say there's 4,000. Anyway, there's a, a lot of people. They've been with Jesus for three days. This is like a typical Bible conference that we have here in our land or we have other places. Uh, even when we went to Nepal, I did some pastor's conferences, and we were there for four or five days together. But here's three days, and this was a large Bible conference. And this is even larger than many conferences in America. I, I, tend to, I like to go up to Minneapolis every year for the Bethlehem uh, Conference for Pastors. There's Iron God Conference for Pastors. And it's a big, big deal, and there are maybe 1,200 pastors there, 1,200 men from churches. But this has more. This is 4,000. This is big. Except their differences here. They, they didn't stay at a nice hotel and their food probably wasn't so nice. In fact, they ran out of food. It shows that probably they weren't expecting to be there for three days. It's not like they were planning and scheduled Jesus uh, for this seminar, this Bible conference they were going to have. Whenever I go to a conference, there's always time. Always, I can schedule what I'm going to do and where I'm going to go, normally months ahead of time. But these people probably saw Jesus come, heard about Jesus coming, and just went out in haste like they often did. In Mark chapter 6, verse 33, it shows that when there was a feeding of the 5,000, it was the same thing. The people saw Him going. 
And many recognized them and ran there together on foot to all the cities and got there ahead of them. They're just getting there ahead of Jesus and then Jesus comes and then they just stay and He starts teaching and more and more people come and pretty soon you have 5,000 people and they um, were finished, Jesus was finished teaching and then He fed them. And in this case, I think they just kind of came from all different places and they weren't really ready for three days to be taught by Jesus. They'd gone out spontaneously but now they here, they've remained for three days. They're without food, verse 2, and it says that Jesus had compassion upon them. We could dig into that expression there a lot. This is the only time in all the Bible where Jesus speaks about Himself having compassion. Um, back in chapter 6, it just said that Jesus had compassion for them. He felt compassion. Chapter 6, verse 34. But here He is saying Himself, I feel compassion for these people. Compassion is splachnizo. It means uh, your bowels are aching for these people. Jesus is sympathizing with these people in the greatest degree, concerned about their health, knowing that they're hungry. And if He sends them away hungry, they will faint on the way. They will have problems. They will have difficulty. And so He wants to send them away with some good nourishment. And the disciples... Just even in this, what Jesus is saying, seeing them, I feel compassion for them. If I send them away without anything, they're going to faint on the way. And his disciples knew exactly what Jesus was thinking. They're thinking, okay, well, he's fed a lot of people before, and what are we going to do now? But they say it in such a way that reveals their unbelief. It says, where, verse 4, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? It's an amazing statement. They discerned Jesus' intentions to feed them, but they didn't comprehend His power. Even though they'd seen the miracle working power of Jesus before, even though they'd seen Jesus feed thousands of people before, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. It just didn't click. They didn't believe. And this is the point of our entire section of Scripture this morning. The disciples have seen so much, and yet their faith is so small. The response should have been, verse 4, well, yes, Jesus, if we send them away hungry, certainly they will faint. Um, they need food and you've done it before. Would you please do it again? Why don't you feed them? Here, let us see your power again, Jesus. We would love to see you work again. But alas, instead they say, where will anyone be able to find enough food in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And if you think about it, this is a smaller crowd than the 5,000. The 5,000 were just men, maybe more, this was 4,000. If it was just men, there'd be maybe more in proportion. So there were fewer people here. This would be an easier miracle. But these disciples were men of little faith. We've seen it before. Back in Mark chapter 4, remember they were in the boat during the storm. And it came upon the waters. Jesus was sleeping in the boat and His disciples were, were frightened for their lives because of the, the storm. And they woke Him up. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And so Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, said, hush, be still. And the wind stopped and the waves stopped. And Jesus said, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They'd seen Jesus at this time perform many miracles, but at, at, at this time they had no faith. We're going to see coming up in chapter 9. When uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the top of this high mountain, He leaves the other disciples down there. And while Jesus is up here doing His thing, the disciples down there are confronted with a man who has a, a boy with an unclean spirit who throws him into convulsions and, and it often leads him into the fire, into the water. And he's got to be constantly rescued and because of his demonic spirit that he had. And this man brought the son to the disciples and they couldn't cast him out and went to Jesus. And they said, why weren't we able to cast this demon out? And He said, fundamentally, it's an issue of faith. Jesus said, this kind cannot come out by anything but with prayer. It's prayer that casts us out. And basically, He's saying, you guys are prayerless, you guys are faithless. Now, before we st throw stones at them, realize this, that we, I think, sit in the same boat. We, we believe Jesus, but there's a stance where we, we, don't, we don't fully grasp everything. We, we believe, but we don't fully believe. As Jesus says to this father, this father said, hey, if you, if you believe, all things are possible to you. And he said, verse 24 of chapter 9, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And that's what the disciples should have responded with. Maybe they did have a heart of that. But that's where many of us are, right? We believe. Help our unbelief, O Lord. 
Because time and time again, we've seen God work, and yet time and time again, we fail to fully believe His power. Oh, that God would give us a grace to fully believe all that He has for us. Do you believe? Do you understand? Because these disciples didn't. And then verse 5, we see Jesus stepping into action, actually feeding the 5,000. So, He was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And He said, they said, Seven loaves. So, again, we've seen this before. right? They said seven loaves. And, and the loaves they're going to have are going to be... You know what? That doesn't fit up there. Loaves are going to be something like this, like falafel bread. And I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of these here, which we'll have at potluck if you can endure my greasy fingers on these things. Um, but he got seven pieces of bread... Just about, probably like this much. And then just let me read this. He directed the people, okay, everyone sit down on the ground. He's got these seven loaves. He gave thanks to the Lord and he broke them. He starts ripping them up and starts giving him to the disciples and they start serving him. He's just distributing these and all of a sudden, 4,000 people. So we have here today, I don't know how many. Normally we've got 100 people, but we've got a bunch of kids over there. I don't know how many we have here. 70, 80, 90 here in the 80 maybe. And so you think about 4,000. How many times is that? Come on, help me math people. About 40, 50 times this size. And he's feeding that with just seven little loaves of bread. And then... He had a few small fish. So I got some. I got some small fish for us here. <clears throat> right, we got our fish. Now I'm not sure if they, the fish on the Sea of Galilee, more looking more like um, bluegill than they did this. But this kind of gives you an insight. He's got a few small ones. I've got. I've got four here, but maybe Jesus had three. Maybe he had seven. Who knows? But he's got a few. And it says small fish. These are small fish, right? These aren't your big salmon you're grabbing out of the ocean. These are little, small fish. And it says in verse 7, After He'd blessed them, He ordered these to be served as well. And so I'm not sure how it worked, whether people took a chunk off of these fish and ate them. But you think about... Here's something I, I thought about this week. When Jesus created the fish, He created them dead. He created them edible, ready to eat. Maybe... He created them smoked. You never, you never know. You don't, don't quite know how Jesus created them. But there they were. And He passed it out. Thank you. Passed that out. Distributed that among 4,000 people. Now, how it worked, I, I don't know. Maybe it multiplied in the containers in which He handed it out. So as, as they were going out to, to share with these 4,000 people, the disciples of these containers, maybe it was multiplying there. Maybe Jesus, it, it continued to multiply. He continued to give and continued to give and continued to give. Maybe even the disciples, they pulled some out. All of a sudden, they had three in their hand. And they pulled one out and they had some more in their hand. And, and may, maybe it's a combination of all. I have no idea how this took place. But I know it took place. It is a miracle. And we need to believe that with just a, seven loaves, a few small fish, Jesus was able to feed the thousands and marvel at that. Wonder at That's the point. He said, Jesus is powerful. This is who He is. He's revealing Himself. I'm the powerful one who can feed and satisfy everybody. And satisfy them, He did. If you look at verse 8, it says, and they ate and were satisfied. <clears throat> that is, they all had all as much as they wanted. A few years back in our household, we had some Chinese students over the Thanksgiving holiday um, they came from Chicago. We picked them up Wednesday and uh, spent Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They came to church and then went back home on Sunday and had a great time with them. But they were involved in Thanksgiving feast with us. And uh, they were um, around the Thanksgiving holiday. And as we exchanged back and forth about things about their culture and they learned about things about our culture, we're sitting around the Thanksgiving table and we're just like, oh, we ate too much turkey again, right? And you, you know what that feeling I'm talking about, right? When your stomach just fills and you, all you want to do is just kind of regret that you ate so much or lie on, the, lie on the couch or go to sleep or take a nap or something. And you just, oh. And so we talked to these Chinese men about, uh, man, I'm really stuffed. And so, oh, how, how do you say it? And they're stuffed? That didn't quite translate for them. Their English wasn't so good. And 
So about what do you say in uh, in Chinese where you you eat so much and you have so much in your stomach and you you can't eat anymore? What do you say? Oh, you guys remember what they say? What do they say? Baula. They say baula. Oh, and so that's that's what we use at our house now. Whenever we eat so much at Thanksgiving time, we say baula. And the four thousand people who were there, if they had known Chinese. All 4,000 of them would have been able to say, Baola, Baola, because they ate, as verse 8 says, and were satisfied. That is, they were filled. They didn't want any more. And if these people were like anything of the people in Nepal that we know about, uh, they would have eaten a lot. Um, when, we, when we were in Nepal and had the pastors and their wives together, I mean, they, they were eating, but then we had a nice meal. It was unbelievable how much food these people ate when we had, had a chance at a nice restaurant. And uh, when the free food was there, they, they ate a lot, didn't they? <laughs> they didn't get that opportunity very much. And I think these people, probably poor and downcast as well, didn't have this opportunity very much. And Jesus makes a good fish. And so they certainly ate a lot and were baola. Well, verse 8 shows that there was no lack of food. It says they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over from the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there and he sent them away. Now these seven baskets here uh, are seven large baskets is what it said. These are different than the 12 baskets that they picked up uh, in Mark chapter 6. There are different words used for them consistently all the way down through. Um, the, the, the 12 baskets they picked up were, were smaller. I don't know exactly what they were. Maybe they're made of wicker and they're smaller. But these were, this is a large basket. This is what the disciples placed uh, Paul into so they could lower him down off the roof so that of, out, out of the wall of Damascus so he could flee for his life. So these are big enough for a person to sit in if you kind of rig it up with some ropes. And I'm not sure whether it's a flat something like this that you can get, but something big. These were seven large baskets full and those were a lot of leftovers that they left for 4,000 people. That's how it was. Do you understand the power of Jesus? 4,000 people full of food, plenty left over. Well, there's feeding the 4,000. Let's go to my next point. Seeking a sign. Verses 10, verses 11 through 13, I guess. Or 10 through 13, whatever. Verse 10 sets up the stage. Immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. This is another geography lesson from the best we can tell. This is across the Sea of Galilee on the southwestern side. When the boat moored along the shore to the western shore, we see verse 11. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now this is a shocking statement. Seeking a sign from heaven... Jesus had already shown them many signs. He cast a demon out of a man in the synagogue in Mark chapter 1, and the the leaders of the synagogue were certainly able to tell Jesus of what happened. This man, this demon-possessed spirit, and and Jesus just rebuked him, and the spirit went out of him. Jesus healed the crowds that were coming to Capernaum. So many so, the crowds of the whole city were around. And if there weren't any Pharisees there at that time in Galilee, at least they could have been notified of that in uh, Jerusalem, and they would have heard about that. Or Jesus cleansed a leper, and the leper went reporting to the priest. The priest would have been in Jerusalem, and news would have gotten around. He was a former leprous man, and now he's been healed, and priests were in conjunction. They knew the Pharisees and the scribes. They were all together. They would have seen this obvious sign that Jesus did. Jesus healed the paralytic right in front of the Pharisees' eyes. Chapter 2, 1-12. through 12. Because it says the scribes were, were, were combating with him. And Jesus healed this man, lifted down through the roof, a clear sign. He walked up. He walked out. Jesus healed the man's withered hand in the synagogue. That was right in front of the Pharisees. They'd seen lots of signs from Jesus. On top of this, they would have heard about many others. They would have heard about Jesus calming the storm or, or curing the demoniac who had the legion of demons in him. They would have heard about Jesus, Jairus' daughter and the woman who was cured from the blood a little girl who was raised from the dead. And some of them may well have been in the crowd when the 5,000 were fed. And now when the 4,000 come up, I think it was. Here's another big sign. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking a sign from heaven to test him. Now, you can see right here in verse 11 that these Pharisees are not coming with a teachable spirit. They are coming with an antagonistic spirit. 
They, they weren't coming to learn. It's not like they wanted to grow in their faith. They had, they had no understanding. They weren't asking Jesus for a sign that they believed. They were asking Him for a sign. If you look in verse 11, it says, to test Him. And it says in verse 11, they came out to begin to argue with Him. I've encountered people like that before who, uh, when you encounter them, they've come in to argue. I've had people come to Rock Valley Bible Church and, you know, they've been here. And as soon as I have finished preaching, they've come right up to me and began arguing with me. And I say, it's a bad sign if anyone does that. So they don't have a teachable heart. So they just want to teach and push. And they've told me before all the things I've done wrong, all the things I've taught wrong. And it's like, bing, 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 there's a sign. If they're arguing first thing, it's a problem. And here it's problem as well is that they're just trying to test Jesus. That is, they weren't really trying to test Him. They're trying to trap Him. And the attitude demonstrates they didn't understand. It's not that they weren't exposed to Jesus before because they had been. It's not like they, they needed something and they hadn't seen Jesus. No, they knew very well about Jesus. Turn back to chapter 3. When you see in the first six verses here, Jesus entered in the synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching Him to see if He would heal on the Sabbath. They, I think, is the Pharisees in verse 6 because the Pharisees went out immediately. And they were just watching to see what is He going to do. They might accuse Him. They're they're not interested in a sign. They're interested in trapping Him and testing Him. And that's when He said, Come up, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save a life or to kill? And looking around with anger, He said, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, his hand was restored. And verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And here it was, the Pharisees and perhaps the Herodians were there as well, seeking to trap Jesus, arguing with him. And, and they had hard hearts. They, they had seen signs from Jesus. And even seeing the sign was the very reason why they wanted to destroy him. Chapter 3, verse 6. But now they're asking for another sign and look at Jesus' response. Sighing deeply in his spirit. I think just exacerbation. Just kind of like, oh man, you guys will never learn. Sighing deeply. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. You can't take these words too precisely because it's not the whole generation who's seeking for a sign. It's not that no sign will be given because even in, in uh, Matthew 16, he said that no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. But I think what he's talking about here is he's just, just saying, you know what, I'm done with you guys. No more signs. Nothing to you guys. He's done with the Pharisees. They saw Jesus. They knew His power. Here's coming off feeding the 5,000. They heard about that and they rejected Him. Eventually, they would... Crucify Him upon the cross. Paul tells us why they crucified Him. As Darren read for us earlier. 1 Corinthians 2. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And they saw Jesus, but they didn't understand. And that is the theme of this whole, whole section here. They witnessed His miracles, but they didn't embrace Him, so they crucified the Lord of glory. Now, in God's sovereignty, God used their wickedness in a great way to be the most blessed event that took place in the world with Jesus crucified upon the cross for our sins. That we merely look to Him and we are saved from our sins. It's the glories of the Gospel. That believing in His sacrifice reconciles us to God. And yet it all happened because these Pharisees were hardened you say, where did they go wrong or how were they hardened? And I think it's right here. They were seeking a sign. They were sign seekers. They wanted a sign from heaven. They wanted something to confirm Jesus. But even after Jesus rose from the dead, even after the sign of Jonah, even after that great miracle and many others raising from the dead, that didn't stop them. They didn't say, oh, we have our sign now. Rather, the problem continued after that. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, the Jews seek for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. I'm just telling you, the message of the cross will never satisfy sign seekers. It won't. Let's get over that. With sign seekers, the cross is not going to satisfy them. And Jesus knew this and that's why He left. 
That's why it says, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Here we see people of no understanding. Right? Do you understand? Before we just say, oh, those bad sign seekers. Sign seekers are those who are looking for proof for their faith. Demonstrate it. Prove to me. Always looking for God to work. Wanting to see God with 100% clarity. Let me see Him. Can you prove God? Those are sign seekers. Sometimes those people are in the church. And what's fascinating here is we have people who are intent on the Scriptures. Nobody was intent more on the Scriptures than the Pharisees. Because they search the Scriptures. They think in them they have eternal life. And they knew them really well. And it's these same people who are looking for a sign to verify what they, what they wanted rather than just simply taking by faith the Scriptures. But know that God has not made the world in such a way that He proves Himself 100% to all of us. If God wanted to, He could have made Himself known to all of us. It's not to say God's ways are insufficient. They aren't. I'm sorry, they are. I'm sorry. It's not to say that they aren't insufficient. That means to say that they are sufficient. What God has revealed is totally exactly like He has planned. The creation which shouts His name without words. We might say maybe more whispers. The Scriptures which are there for us to see and read, which many can't understand. But that's how God has chosen to do it. Because God has made the world in such a way that the people who come to Him come to Him by faith. People who come to Him don't come to Him because He has so proven Himself beyond a shadow of a doubt that we all know. That's not how God has made the world. He could have chosen to walk and talk with everyone on the planet like He did with Adam and Eve. He could have chosen a daily personalized podcast to go to every single one of us, telling us and explaining us all the mysteries are going to happen that day. He could have done that. That's not how God made the world. God made the world so we need to come to Him by faith. That's the reality of our existence. And those who seek for a sign right, right to, to, to know something before they would believe in Him are contrary to this creation, contrary to God's ways. It says in Hebrews... Those who come to God must believe that He is. And that He's a reward of those who seek Him. Those who come to God must come to God by faith. That's how God made the world. Let's not be sign seekers. Let's take God's Word and believe it and trust it. Well, my third point, and these last two are going to be fast. Feeding the 4,000, seeking a sign. Here He goes, warning the disciples. These kind of spill into one another, but slightly different. Because now he's focusing on the disciples. These who have little faith or small faith or slow faith. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now this is classic missing the point. Jesus took seven loaves of bread and fed 4,000 people. And now they just have one loaf. Well, maybe, maybe even less than that, as it says. And they did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Okay? Maybe they just had one. Maybe they had less than one. They just had a little bit. Maybe they had only a part of it. We don't know. But they had only this. And Jesus with seven could be thousands. And they're concerned about not having even one, maybe to feed twelve. Missed the point. Jesus warned the disciples of eleven of the Pharisees and eleven of Herod, and they talk about not having bread. They misunderstood. Have you been misunderstood before? Well, sometimes it's humorous. Uh, in California... We were out there when we went out to Nepal a couple um, a month ago or so, I guess, maybe six weeks ago, something like that. And um, Avon's parents, they're going hard of hearing. And uh, they both have um, hearing aids. They don't wear them all the time. Uh, my mother-in-law um, oftentimes says, pardon, pardon. Just trying, it just doesn't, doesn't hear. Doesn't hear. Well, we're sitting down to eat. Um, things are, we're trying to gather everybody there because we're there and my sister-in-law and her family's there. It means another couple kids are around and it's chaos normally in our house alone, but then add some more kids and cousins together haven't seen each other and they're really excited. And so my mother-in-law is kind of, kind of saying, shh, shh, 
quiet down, quiet down. Uncle Steve's going to pray. Shh, Uncle Steve's going to pray. And David heard that and said, who's Uncle Steve? <laughs> Which is pretty funny. But then they're going back. And then, and then uh, Grandma Lola says, oh, no, no, we don't have any cheese. And we don't have any. <laughs> and Hannah and I, like, catch our eyes on what's happening here. And we're just, we're just laughing. But we're patient because my mother-in-law can't hear. And so we're, we're okay. But sometimes it can be humorous and sometimes it can be tragic. I, I remember hearing the story about the man who was looking for work and he saw a sign in someone's window that said, Painter Wanted. So he went to the house, knocked on the door and said, I'm here for the paint job. I said, oh, okay, here, here's the paint. I want you to go uh, paint the porch. And so, some of you heard this probably. So the man said, okay. And sure, no problem. He sets off to, to work. It's not very long. He knocks on the door again and says, hey, all, all is finished. And the owner gives him the money and says, wow, that didn't take very long. And, and the guy boasting says, yeah, I even gave it two coats. And he says, oh, 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 by the way, by the way, it's not a porch, it's a Ferrari. That's what he said. Well, that's about what took place 2,000 years ago. Jesus is speaking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He's not talking about bread. He's talking about using that symbolic way to talk about their teaching or their influence. Just as leaven has, has great influence. And they mistook him to talk about bread. They didn't understand the warning. They didn't understand what he was talking about. And here, Jesus had just finished his confrontation with the Pharisees. I'm done with you. I'm done. No signs of this generation. And then he leaves and then he talks about the leaven of these people. He says, beware of the leaven. Beware of the influence they have in your life. Beware of their teaching. It may be only a little bit. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So, I think he's saying, steer clear totally of them. We are done with these Pharisees. And even as you look, Jesus doesn't give the Pharisees much time after this in Mark at all. It's the Pharisees had their mindset on traditions. He said, stay away from their tradition. The Herodians were more politicized. They had a secular mindset. Stay away from them. They're on a bad path. Avoid them. You saw the way that I rebuked them, so rebuke them in the same way. Have nothing to do with them. And I think that that's what he's warning against these people, but probably even more specifically, warning that they're sign seekers. He's um, warning that they are, are seeking signs. You know, when you start seeking signs in your relationship with God, it's, it's a little bit like you're hiking and uh, you're at, you're at uh, this place where there are multiple trailheads, where there's a trailhead that maybe goes down here and, hi- and goes there, and then there's a trailhead here, and they're, they're just feet apart. And uh, you get on the wrong trailhead because you start seeking signs, and in the end you will go to a long, wrong place where you wanted to be because you took the wrong trailhead, and the wrong trailhead is a seeking sign, a proof-oriented Christianity. And he says, stay away from that. I just say, do you understand that warning? Are you one who trusts the Lord? Now, I'm not saying apologetics isn't right. I'm not saying that proof of the faith isn't right. Because you will find in your faith, as you believe and trust, you'll find everything fits into place. I'm not saying that. But, but if everything's got to fit in place first before you believe, that's wrong. That's, that, that's where they're missing. They, gotta, they have their signs first. Well, that's the warning. And the warning is a, is a call really to not seek signs. Okay, my last one, asking the question. 17 through 21, here's where we come at the climax of things. Jesus, aware of this, that they, they were talking about they didn't have any bread, confronting their error, he asks seven questions. And this is very humorous, actually, if uh, you think about it. Why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Question one Do you not yet see or understand? There's the point. Uh, are you one who doesn't understand? Do you have a hardened heart getting at the core of the issue? And he's talking about this because there was miscommunication. He says you don't understand. And because of his power, you don't understand. And then he quotes the Old Testament here. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? 
Now, it's difficult. That, that concept is quoted in the Old Testament several places. Um, and it's difficult to know exactly which one Jesus is referring to. Because Isaiah used this same kind of terminology. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Jeremiah said this thing in Jeremiah 5.21. And Ezekiel said this sort of thing in Ezekiel 12, verse 2. But, it, but he's saying, are, are you... Do you have eyes and you can't see? Do you have ears and you can't hear? And then he treats them. That's treating them like prophets here, actually. That's how the prophet would, would use his Scriptures. You guys have eyeballs, can't you see? And you have ears, can't you hear what I'm saying? Then he treats them like little children. And do you not remember when I, I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you pick up? And they probably scratched his head and said, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, Seven. He said, Do you not understand? Hello? I mean, he, did, he didn't connect the dots entirely. He, he, he didn't say, If I did all that, I can certainly feed you. But that is the clear implication. Remember the abundance of what I had left over? I didn't do it once for you. I did it twice for you. Don't you think I can feed you? Food is no problem, so trust me with this. It's kind of like parents when you try to reason with your child. I know that our son David sometimes gets really angry when maybe I take a potato chip from his plate and eat it. Like, oh no, that's mine, that's mine! And I'm like... You know, isn't there a bag there? You know, sitting right there on the table. Can't you grab some more? Won't that be okay? But he can't. And you try to reason with him about that, and it just doesn't work. This is his food, and it doesn't work. Or like the other day when Cade was over, right? <laughs> David and Cade had got their yogurt. Okay? Do you remember this, Cade? You got your yogurt. That's Austin. Cade is gone. I thought that. Okay, good. <laughs> They got their yogurt. <laughs> they got their yogurt in front of each other, and uh, they they start eating their yogurt. And Cade finishes first, and David was so upset because Cade finished his yogurt first, and I wanted to finish my yogurt first. <laughs> I wasn't there, but that's what Yvonne said. And so she said, "Okay, how about some more?" And they raced again the second time, and he lost the second time again. But your your kids have voracious appetites, I think. I'm not sure. Um. So there they, they were. And, and you try to reason with a child about that and it just doesn't quite work. And here, here Jesus is trying to reason with these people like children and they just don't understand. Well, do you understand? Do you understand the power of Jesus? Do you understand who Jesus is? Will you entrust yourself to Him? I do believe this is the greatest struggle we have in life is to really believe what we believe. Does that make sense? To, to really grasp what we say and what we think and what we profess to believe. And, and, and the story is told of this guy who uh, walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Okay? This isn't a true story, I, I, I don't think, but it's a great story to, to bring up the illustration. In fact, by the way, there is going to be someone walking the Niagara Falls here pretty soon. Um, on a tightrope. But the story is told to make this point about the man who walked Niagara Falls on this tightrope with his big, you know, balancing pole and he's walking across. He goes across and, and the crowd cheered. Woo! And he gets to the other side and he puts his pole down and he turns back this way and starts walking across the Niagara Falls like this. And the crowd's like, <gasps> and he gets back to the other side and the crowd cheers. They say, woo! You're the greatest! You're the greatest! You, you're a tightrope walking king! And then he turned to the crowd and he says, I tell you what, do you believe that I can, I can walk across with a wheelbarrow? Do you believe that? And the crowd said, yes, we believe! And he says, okay. And he starts walking across with this wheelbarrow all the way across. And he makes it to the other side and he can hear the echo. Ah! And then, and then uh, he had a speaker system set up and he was, he was announcing back, he says, yes, do you believe that I can fill it with 200 pounds of bricks and walk across the, the tightrope? 
And they said, yes, we believe, yes. And so they filled it up with all these bricks. And now he's walking back with all these 200 pounds of bricks. And he makes it back to the other side. And the crowd's going wild. Whoa, you're like the greatest tightrope walker that the world has seen. And then he says, he says, do you believe that I can push the wheelbarrow across with a person in it? Like, yeah, yeah, you can. He says, do you really believe you can? They said, yeah, you can. And he says, who first? Who's first? And it went, What's the problem? They didn't believe what they said they believed. There's, there's a little bit of a difference between saying you believe and believing and then really trusting and acting upon that. And I think that's often our experience. We, we believe with our hearts. We confess with our mouths. Really, in, in many ways, we are there and yet, and yet, we struggle with getting in the wheelbarrow so as to, to be guided along the tightrope. Even though we've seen God prove it before, even, even though we, we understand it and, and would say that and acknowledge it and want to get in the wheelbarrow, it's, it's difficult. And here we see the disciples as Jesus asked them, do you not yet understand? We're going to see the disciples continue to struggle with this type of question about whether you really understand or not. And I think that we are just like the disciples. We can comfort in that. And we ought to pray like the man prayed in Mark chapter 9, O Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. May God give us grace to grow in our faith. Let's pray. Father, I would pray that we here at Rock Valley Bible Church would truly embrace and understand the glories that we have in Christ. God, that we are, we are forgiven of our sin and that the promises of reward far outweigh God, all the pleasures that we can enjoy here on earth. Um, thank You for the, the steps of victory You give us and the baby steps and the stepping out and the speaking to others and evangelizing them and telling them of the glories of Christ. God, despite what that might bring to us or the willingness to bring shame upon ourselves for the, the name of Christ or the, the willingness to sacrifice for Jesus in whatever way that is. But I would pray, O oh Lord, that You would increase that faith. And that when we're asked, do you understand? We would say, yes, Lord, we do and follow in, in all the ways. And I would pray, Lord, as we walk through the Gospel of Mark and see all the different ways in which the disciples missed it, which they didn't understand, um, Father, we would, would pray that we'd find comfort in that, but also find hope that after the resurrection they saw and did understand and gave their lives for Christ. So help us, O oh Lord, to be where they ended, giving our lives for Jesus because we understand what you've given to us because we understand you and the way you work and how trustworthy and faithful you are and how compassionate you are. If you cared for the 4,000, certainly you care for the one who pleads your name before the throne. So God, I pray for your help. I pray also as we celebrate our monthly potluck, here after the service, that you might bless that food to our bodies, that we would enjoy our fellowship with one another, that we would encourage one another and build each other up um, in that time of enjoyment. God, we thank you. Thank you for being patient with us. And we pray you'd use these words to strengthen our understanding and strengthen our faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.